Anderson. And as always, thanks for joining us. Lots of people went to national parks last year. And many more, presumably, will go this summer as the world begins to open back up. It's a classic American trip, practically a rite of passage in our culture, a visit to a national park. These are simply magnificent places. And during the pandemic, our natural spaces, both locally and across the country, have become a refuge for so many of us seeking somewhere to go, either alone or as a COVID-friendly option for some much-needed social interaction. And in honor of Earth Week here on Detroit Today, I want to spend some time today delving into not just the beauty and solace of these spaces, but also examine the cultural, historical, and social significance of our wilderness. And let's start with a question. Who owns these spaces? How did they come to be? And what's the real cultural impact of federal efforts to preserve this land? Here to talk with me and hash out the answers to these big questions is someone who's recently been thinking a lot about this particular aspect of American life. Ross Anderson is a deputy editor at The Atlantic, and he's managing that publication's new series that's out just in time for Earth Week. It's called... Who Owns America's Wilderness? Russ Anderson, welcome to Detroit Today. Thanks for having me, Stephen. It's great to be on the show. Yeah. So let's start with that that question. Who owns America's wilderness? And what prompted you to to arrive at that question and frame a series for the magazine around it? Yeah, who indeed? Um, Well, I'll tell you what. So... At the Atlantic, um, you know, as uh, because we don't have the kind of the sexiness of some of the newer publications in American life, we often find ourselves uh, <clears throat> uh, hearkening back to our past and uh, our kind of former glories. And, you know, um, it's always been a kind of point of pride for us that, you know, Emerson, who is one of the Atlantic's founders, mm-hmm. kind of articulated a new philosophy of nature, you know, some of it in the Atlantic's pages which was then kind of taken up by John Muir later, uh, who made, you know, an obviously persuasive case uh, for national parks um, in our magazine. And I think that it occurred, you know, to us that perhaps a note of self-congratulation had really crept into our thinking about wilderness and and Muir in particular. Mm -hmm. um, And that, uh, that, note of self-congratulation might actually be widely shared in American culture, where most people think of the national parks, as you said in your lovely introduction, um, as just being kind of great, a rite of passage in American life, a place that places that we all love to visit that um, actually are, are decidedly unpolitical spaces. And, um, you know, as we thought about you know, we we wanted to do a project. We realized, you know, even during the pandemic last year that mm-hmm. this moment, you know, that we're in right now, uh, Earth Week, as you say, but also this broader kind of sense of reopening, um, this sort of springtime in the, in the fullest sense uh, was probably a good time to really think through um, the meaning of American wilderness and to take a less uh, a historical view of it, uh, because really, 
um, the view of Emerson and Muir wandering into these, you know, places like Yosemite or the Grand Canyon and imagining them as beautiful, empty wildernesses was false because Mm -hmm. there had indeed been people there. Um, And quite recently, it's not like this was ancient history for someone like John Muir. I mean, he, when he was sort of wandering the valleys of, of Yosemite, you know, he was in, he was in a, a space that actually had been depopulated uh, by force, you know, just decades earlier. Mm-hmm. And, and this, this, uh, this question again, who owns mm. the wilderness? Uh, let's, let's dig into that and, and talk about what that means in the context of the magazine's work here. Yeah. Uh, you know, and so I'll, I'll, I'll say that our, our first natural direction that we wanted to take this project, um, when we thought about, okay, who owns America's wilderness, you know, to whom do these spaces belong, um, was to correct that historical error, uh, that mm. conception of the parks as being um, part of natural history, but not part of human history. And so we invited uh, David Troyer, who's a, a wonderful Native American writer, um, to take up the subject of the national parks on our cover, which is uh, just out this week, actually, um, <clears throat> with a very powerful essay called Return the National Parks to the Tribes. Mm. And, you know, we thought of David because he wrote a wonderful book a few years ago uh, called Heartbeat, of, Heartbeat at Wounded Knee. And the argument of his book was that the story of Native Americans, as it's kind of commonly told in our culture, is a story that has an ending, bizarrely. Um, It's a story that, you know, Native Americans are part of history Mm -hmm. um, and are not kind of a living and vibrant part of the American present. And so he sort of tells the story in that book of the history of Native America from uh, 1870 to the present. And so he did this amazing thing in this, in this cover story for us where he goes and he kind of ticks through the history of, you know, all the kind of real canonical parks, you know, whether it's Yellowstone um, or Yosemite or Glacier. And he shows how native peoples were dispossessed Mm -hmm. in those places. And he makes an argument that they ought to be returned to the tribes. uh, As the cover line says that these are, these places properly belong to indigenous peoples and not insofar as what he's not saying is that native peoples should, you know, take these places and only live on them and, and, and no one else can come in. You know, he, I think he very much favors and sees the value in the national park model. Um, but just thinks that these spaces are, are rightly belong to native peoples. Yeah. I mean, it, it reminds me just a little of some of the other conversations we're having right now about, mm our history about public spaces and how we reconcile uh, awful parts of our history with the need now that people have uh, to, to kind of celebrate public spaces. Uh, it, it's a little bit like uh, the Confederate statue uh, argument, uh, which, which is still raging. Um, I, I wonder if you can talk just a little about what you think is a just way to address uh, this dispossession of of land uh, from from native tribes, but still preserve that um, 
that indulgence, I guess, that we that we have for this great wilderness space. I mean, I I, I hate to think that that our preservation of and our celebration of wilderness uh, would have to go away if uh, because of uh, you know its awful history. Yeah, that's a great point, and uh, you're you're right to note the kind of resonance with some of the the current debates about the kind of the surprising sort of uh, endurance of symbols of the Confederacy, for mm-hmm. instance, mm-hmm. in our common cultural life. Mm-hmm. And and with this one, I, I, it's funny. I mean, even among uh, political constituencies who uh, favor a kind of reckoning with American history, the national parks have this really kind of special um, dispensation. You know, people feel really fondly, you know, a statue of Robert E. Lee is a different thing than the Grand Canyon. Sure. You know, um, <laughs> and so it is, we were wary of that. And, and uh, you know, people thinking like, now you've crossed the line, you know, <laughs> which is why we, we tried to really make a historical argument. But yes, I mean, I think one of the most powerful, you know, I worked with on this essay with David for a period of six months. And one of the themes that he really brought out that speaks to your question, which I found really kind of moving um, is this sense that, uh, you know, there's been so much written about how the really ugly ways that Native Americans were forcibly assimilated into American culture, mm-hmm. you know, with, with uh, schooling, you know, and with, uh, in, you know, just to take one example in the California mission system, uh, this is familiar to me because I grew up in California, the, the way that, uh, you know, the Native Americans there were, uh, forbidden from carrying out their kind of traditions and telling their stories of the mission system. They mm-hmm. were just, you know, kind of decultured aggressively in the, in the ways that we see in, in Xinjiang and China today with the Uyghurs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that he brings up this point, this irony that in spite of that, in spite of the kind of murderous campaign that reduced native numbers so severely and these assimilation attempts, at least when it comes to the wilderness, uh, Americans, which is to say white Americans or, you know, some uh, non-Native Americans, um, have actually assimilated culturally to Native views of connecting to nature Mm. and a a more kind of Native American appreciation of the wilderness spaces, which was not the kind of dominant way of relating to nature when um, Europeans first came to this continent. And... I think that's, first of all, just lovely to think about, but also I think it points the way, I guess what he wants to say by that is that a national park where all peoples have kind of access and can experience these places in quite a reverent way Mm -hmm. is a kind of quite naturally Native American way of preserving these spaces anyway. You know, so it's not no one need fear that turning these places over to the tribes is going to lead to some radical, radically different um, mode of management of access and management of the land itself. In mm-hmm. fact, we, you know, not to get too into the, the kind of white paper details here, but, <clears throat> you know, we, we talk in the piece about how you'd want to have covenants where, you know, some baseline of conservation um, that you had to kind of be north of that and that, you know, you'd always 
preserve universal access, not just for Americans, but for people across the world. Because as we know, America's national parks are America's national park system are are the envy yes. you know of the world. And people, you know, when you when you visit these parks, my dad actually lives in southern Utah, right outside Zion. So I mm. find myself in Bryce and Zion and the Grand Canyon quite often, and they're filled with Asians and Europeans. Mm. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's that sort of ethic of, of preservation and access uh, is totally consistent with a Native, a Native American philosophy about these places. Yeah, yeah. I'm talking with Ross Anderson. He's a deputy editor at The Atlantic, and he is managing that publication's new series, Who Owns America's Wilderness? So we're addressing that question here to kick off Earth Week uh, and talking about the legacy, both good and bad, of America's uh, astounding national park uh, system and the need to come to reckon with some of uh, the negative aspects of that legacy, but also uh, to preserve the access and the preservation uh, that has marked our national park, park system for, for so long. Uh, we'd love to hear from you during the segment as well. Uh, have you gotten out to explore some of our national parks uh, during the pandemic. Uh, do you have plans to go to visit one maybe this summer as the world opens up a little more and uh, we feel a little freer about traveling uh, about? Uh, also, what do you make of this history, uh, the tension around the history of our national parks, uh, the dispossession that is associated with their establishment, but of course, uh, the great legacy that uh, that they have uh, developed for themselves as parks uh, over a long period of time. Uh, as always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook or Twitter and put comments there, and uh, we will try to work you into the conversation uh, that way. Big Neo on Twitter says, when it comes to actual wilderness, I live vicariously through my brother, who is part of the Navajo tribe of indigenous people. They teach that no one owns the land. We are all supposed mm. to be stewards of the land, keeping it safe and healthy. Uh, let's go to Mark in Redford. Mark, welcome to the show. Stephen, good morning. Hey. Good morning, Russ. Good um, morning. Back, back in 1984, I volunteered um, for the Forest Service in uh, Montana. It's gorgeous out there. We were cleaning uh, trails mm. for hikers and horsemen. And what it did, it provided access to uh, visitors to the national parks and some of the uh, the sites in the region, but um, mm -hmm. one thing that hit home for me in working there was uh, that we have to observe stewardship for sure to uh, preserve these um, uh, beautiful places and entities. Mm. And it's some of the organizations I haven't heard from that I knew in the past, such as uh, Upward Bound and 4-H clubs. I know they were involved in uh, volunteerism <laughs> in that respect too. Yeah. Mark, uh, yeah. I, I really appreciate the call and, and those thoughts. It's really cool that you that, that you did that volunteering. Uh, Ross, I wonder what you make of what Mark's talking about here. <clears throat> yeah, I, I Mark, it's interesting, uh, you know, hearing hearing your story, uh, it strikes me that how <clears throat> um, how little it takes actually for people who come to experience the land in any sort of relational way. Uh, how that and kind of implants that sense of stewardship so quickly, um, and uh, yeah, I, I, uh, I would hope that any kind of future 
conservation um, paradigm that we have in this country, you know, still uh, makes way for upward bound and organizations like that, especially the ones that are taking kids out there. I'm, I've got a 12 year old myself and I, I really can't wait to kind of send him on some summer out in the <laughs> wild uh, in a, a place like uh, the forest of Montana um, where he can, he can really get his hands dirty for a while and, and sort of come away with the kind of experiences that you had. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Ross, I wonder what you make of, uh, the new administration in Washington and its approach to mm. some of these questions. Uh, so much of what they're doing is really different than what the past administration did. There, there, there was some discussion during the campaign about uh, preservation and, and wilderness. Uh, are, are we headed toward a better reckoning of these things than, than we might have been just a few months ago? Yeah, well, certainly it's an encouraging sign that uh, Deb Haaland was just confirmed as the first ever Native American um, Secretary of the Interior. And, of course, the National Park. uh, We we flatter ourselves, by the way, that we did her a favor by not running this piece until after she was confirmed. (laughs) Um, But, but, uh, yeah, we're we're encouraged by that, uh, certainly just in terms of conservation of wild spaces against, you know, e.g. mineral extraction, um, there's much more encouraging signs coming out of this administration than the previous one. Um, but most of it, you know, strikes me as kind of fiddling at the edges. You know, don't mm-hmm. drill in Alaska, mm-hmm. you know, preserve bear's ears, this sort of thing. It, it's not, I haven't heard anyone taking up anything as truly radical as what we've proposed in the magazine. But, you know, Conservation is a kind of slow and steady business, and so it's it's good to see uh, it's good to see things going in that direction. Yeah, and and what do you make of uh, <clears throat> Holland being being confirmed? I mean, that's that is a huge milestone. It's it's kind of strange to think that that she is the first, but you know, I mean, it's twenty twenty one, but uh, but that seems to be a breakthrough uh, and and has great potential. Absolutely. Uh, I I find myself really encouraged by it. And, um, you know, I think as with many such appointments or elections, you know, uh, one hopes that it, it becomes something much more than symbolic, but mm-hmm. also even symbolic power of it is considerable. Um, and uh, yeah, and even, you know, but putting aside the idea to kind of give the parks back to Native tribes, even just, you know, uh, you would think that, um, Secretary Howland would be much better positioned to think about issues of access. Mm-hmm. And, you know, um, you know, the Blackfeet have had this kind of long running dispute about not being able to uh, hunt bison up in Glacier and some of the other parks up there. And it's actually <clears throat> a complicated issue, right? Because the bison were almost wiped out uh, and it's a very good thing yeah. that they're they're back in in numbers, and you know that's been achieved by having really stringent bans on hunting them, and, and yes. with really hefty, kind of shockingly hefty pen- penalties, you know, years in prison and so forth. And so, uh, who gets a carve out to do that is is a really kind of politically contested issue, and yet there is, I think, a quite uh, kind of stirring argument that these sorts of activities were part of these native life ways and our, our work preserving um, 
And so, mm. yeah, I'm encouraged. Let's, uh, let's hope that uh, we're entering a new era of conservation. Yeah, yeah. Okay, Ross Anderson, deputy editor of The Atlantic. Really great to have you here. And the series is called Who Owns America's Wilderness in The Atlantic Magazine. Thanks again for joining us. Thanks so much, Stephen. That's going to do it for us today. Uh, I want to, first of all, thank our interns and especially uh, one particular intern, Elise Hurd, who produced the segment earlier today about homeless vaccinations here in Detroit. Elise, that was a wonderful thing to, to have done for us. All right, that's going to do it for us today. I will be back tomorrow. Hope you will, too. This is 1019 WDET-FM, Detroit's NPR station. Your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.